Yes, we're back with an all-new season of Blamo, season five. We got lots in store this season, starting with a joint partnership with the acclaimed menswear trade show PT Womo in Florence. I'll be doing some live mini-sodes at their Talking Heads event, featuring some guests from previous seasons and maybe some new ones, so stay tuned for that this week. What else is happening? More of the good stuff. This season we have some new incredible guests, some of which you already know about, but all will be fantastic. Enough about that though, let's talk about this week. A season premiere with the one and only Mr. Wei Ko. I first met Wei a while back, but I was very well aware of him through his work starting Revolution Magazine, which is an incredible publication about watches and neurology, and The Rake, a modern magazine on classic elegance. Look, like most menswear folks, to me, The Rake was the magazine that opened up the so-called closed world of menswear. With writers like Bruce Boyer, Nick Fowkes, and Wei himself, it was a great place for me to explore clothes and learn without, well, feeling like an idiot. Wei and I chatted about the origins of The Rake and Revolution, his own life finding his way through clothes and film, how publishing and e-commerce are merging for the better, and his outlook on the future of editorial writing. It's so good to be back. Let's do it. Mr. Waco. Sir. You're on the pod. What's up? Thank you. Thank you so much, man. This is, this is, a, huge, this is a huge honor to me. Uh, the honor is entirely mine, Jeremy. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I, before we get started, like, I don't know if you know this, which you probably don't because I haven't told you until now. Um, my like, sartorial journey has been because of the rake. Really? Yeah. So like, really, you know, because like, there were blogs and stuff at the time. Um, and, but I don't really think there was ever anything written as eloquent and also as, as visual and, and beautiful as what you guys were putting out. That's very, very kind of you to say. And may I say, incidentally, you know, you guys can't see Jeremy, but he's killing it today. He's got the Orazio Luciano pinstripe flannel you know, suit on. It's oh, amazing. thank you. Actually, what I love about the fact of what you've done is you've got an Orazio Luciano jacket, but then you've gone to Salvatore Ambrosi and you had him in the same fabric make trousers for you, which I love. Oh, yeah. yeah. Got to go to Salva. And which reminds me what the Duke of Windsor used to do because he used to get his jackets made by Frederick Schulte um, in, in England. And then he would get his trousers made by an American trouser maker. So to me, the rake is everything. I mean, it, it's, it really, and it still is an incredible, incredible magazine. Um, and obviously, you know, you did Revolution. So it's an honor. But I want to get started a little bit and talk about your background because sure. i had no idea that you were raised here yeah i was, I was born in uh, new york city actually i'm i'm actually one of the few people in new york city who's born and raised in new york city <laughs> um and uh so i was born in mount sinai hospital okay at the time my dad was the representative from uh, singapore to the united nations and uh, yeah i grew up here went to the un school went uh, to a school called the anglo-american school went to also to a school called trinity okay Went briefly to uh, a school in Connecticut, but um, they soon invited me not to return. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and then finished uh, my high school career, as they say, in Washington, D.C., um, where my father had become uh, the ambassador from Singapore to the United States. What, what was that like? I mean, because the, the reason why I, I want to go a little bit into this is, is your recent editor's letter in right. the rake talked about how you kind of had your own journey and figuring out like that you were into menswear and clothes yes. like, really early on. Yes. Like you talked about roaming around Astor Place and stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. What's uh, it like to grow up in New York? Well, you know, I think that, that sort of seminal moment happened when I went to Trinity, right? Because in Trinity, uh, you were required to wear a jacket and tie. Okay. Um, but you weren't required to wear a school uniform, so you didn't have to wear a blazer with like, a school crest on it. You could make the decision as to how you wanted to dress. 
And so I started really thinking about it, like from the perspective, you know, at the time, I think most of the kids were wearing, you know, Brooks Brothers or, or Paul Stewart or, you know, Jay Press. Mm-hmm. So it was quite preppy. And I've always liked the idea of if you're going to get into something, you really want to study it and kind of, you know, really get into the nuance and detail about it. So I started becoming quite interested in sort of preppy culture and that kind of, that way of dressing. And of course, there was Ralph Lauren at the time. Yeah. Uh, and he was just, you know, the way he put clothes together in these dreamlike contexts was just mythical to me. It's just so inspiring. But at the same time, you know, one of my favorite films when I was a young man was American Gigolo. <laughs> right. And, Richard Gere. Yes. Uh, not so much for the, the message of the film, but because sure. of his style. And, you know, this is when Armani would first burst onto the scenes and you saw these amazing deconstructed looks on Richard Gere. Mm-hmm. And it was very interesting because he's the gigolo in the movie. But he's the best dressed guy in it. And a lot of the way he's dressed is the antithesis of how you imagine a gigolo would dress. He's dressed in a very muted, very sober, <laughs> very elegant and stylish way. I mean, he's got a camel hair, double-breasted you know, yeah, coat on. Yeah, the right? super wide shoulders exactly. and lapels and all that. So I remember there, was, there, you know, there, were, there were shops in New York at the time. There was a shop called Charavari, you know, and they were carrying Armani. And I remember I, you know, I'd have to wait until the end of the sale you know, where they had the discount on top of the discount on top of the discount. And maybe I could get a jacket or maybe I could get a pair of pants. But... I like putting together those entire kind of looks because there was a certain narrative. Like, so if I, if I wanted to dress like in an American gigolo way, I wanted to do it from head to toe, you know, with, with the Capizio shoes and, 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 uh, and the entire, like, you know, double or triple pleated trousers and the double-breasted oversized jacket. Right. And then if I want to do the preppy thing, then I'd like to do it in the, you know, the, the whole nine yards as well. Um, so, you, you know, it became quite interesting. But, but the real, you know, seminal moment for me in terms of the empowerment of, of dressing up was, I think, uh, and you know, it's embarrassing to admit this now, but I think at the tender of age of 14, um, one of my friends said, uh, you know, should we go to a bar? And I said, how the hell are we going to get into a bar? <laughs> and, and he said, we're wearing jackets and ties. Yeah. You know, and we're in New York. It's yeah. five o'clock. Let's just go to a bar. And I, I was about the same height as I, I am now. Unfortunately, apparently all the drinking had stunted my growth. But <laughs> none, nonetheless, uh, we slid right into to the bar. I think it was like McSorley's, you know. Oh, yeah. Right? It's a great bar. And, uh, and then from that point, it was, it was like a revelation. It was like the way I dress could allow me you know, a sort of gateway into this entire other world in New York City. So throughout my high school career, unfortunately, I spent most of my time going out to bars and nightclubs. So when we go to, you know, could Dan- be worse. Danceteria, the Peppermint Lounge, uh, the Limelight. Uh, oh, wow. I actually got into Studio 54 when, <laughs> I, was, when I was 14 years old, just because I was <laughs> dressed you know, appropriately, I suppose. Um, yeah. And then later, you know, when I went throughout college, uh, you know, MK, Obar, Nels, which I think was my favorite, but it was always the empowerment of dress, you know? Right. And it was interesting too, because back in those days, it was uh, all about the doorman, right? Or door woman. And mm-hmm. they would take a look at you and they would gauge based on that sort of first impression of you, whether or not they would let you into the club. And so you start to think about what, what they would want to see. And invariably, I think what they wanted to see was people who were confident in their own character, right? So you'd have to dress in a way that was cool, maybe slightly unconventional, you know? Like at the time, I remember I left a pair of like blazers and like a camel hair jacket with really torn jeans and then nice shoes, you know? Right. And, uh, and, and they, you know, they seemed to respond to that. So I think that was the first moment in which I realized that there's a certain empowerment to clothing. Right. That's, I, that's incredible. So when you're figuring this stuff out, I mean, did, what, what is your family say like what were they i mean not of you going to clubs but you're you're saving and trying to get these jackets and get these suits i mean what what were they thinking they, well to be fair i think they were relatively chagrined uh, and 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 very disappointed in me for the majority of my life i think <laughs> i think they've come to terms with with the fact that i am just who i am you know and, and now they've got their grandchildren which is you know that's a that's a, it's a second chance right right well my dad was like a very accomplished guy my dad was the uh 
is the first Singaporean to go to Harvard Law School. And the way he got into Mr. Harvard, Tommy Coe. Yes, exactly. The man. And the way he got into Harvard Law School was, was pretty incredible, right? So at the end of, of when he was about to graduate, they, in, uh, the Singapore Law University invited these external examiners. And they invited a professor from Harvard. And this is actually a true story because I kind of confirmed it. You know, no, Check my sources. <laughs> and um, so he was asked a question during mm-hmm. the oral examination. And he said, I'm not going to answer your question because your question is from a, a, a legal perspective is not logical. And he then argued so eloquently with this professor from Harvard that he got a scholarship to go to Harvard Law School and became the first Singaporean to go to Harvard Law School. Whoa. And then subsequently went to Cambridge. And, you know, I think so, you know, he, he, he's a very accomplished guy. I think he was like the dean of the law school in Singapore in his late 20s. And when he was appointed to uh, the United Nations, he was the youngest um, you know, permanent representative or, I guess, an ambassador that, that had ever been appointed to that, that role in the United Nations. I wow. Think, I think he was like 29, maybe, or 30. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm pretty shocked. I mean, so life at the co-house, you're at school, and, and your dad's kind of off, you know, representing, you know, your, your guy's country. I yes. mean, what, and, and, you're, and you're out looking at suits. Was, were you kind of trying to find your identity at this time? I mean, well, what, well to be fair also, I was a pretty big loser in high school. Like, well, come I, on. I, no, seriously. I, and, and, uh, and so I was kind of a loner. Um, what, 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 made, what made you think you were a loser? Well, okay, I'll put it this way. I think that, that my experience in New York was a great experience. And I think that it's a very culturally diverse, very fun experience, very dynamic. And that, that I, I, you know, I reacted very well to that. I remember when I went to boarding school in Connecticut, for example, and okay. I had all these sort of like, uh, you know, sort of uh, dreams of what boarding school in Connecticut would be like, because, you know, look a lot of Ralph Lauren ads, right? Yeah. It, it kind of reminded <laughs> me also about later after I finished the military, when I moved to Montana to work on a cattle ranch. Like, oh, we're, we're going to get to yeah, that. Yeah, the reality of that was not <laughs> as nice as the Ralph Lauren ad. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so the reality of, of uh, high school in, in, or boarding school in Connecticut, I expected it to be like, you know, one of those stunning ads with a uh, shot by Bruce Weber, you know, with, yeah. uh, with um, a Buzzy Kerbox, that surfer, uh, the model, and all the guys wearing, you know, all white, you know, white flannels for no, you know, just walking across a green field with like a, a golden retriever bounding and, you know, sort of docile um, uh, respect for them in the background. Um, and you know, you would imagine something out of a Fitzgerald novel, you know, and, right. and the reality was just, there's a whole bunch of dudes that just want to haze you. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I totally empathize with right. the bizarro high school experience. I've yes. talked about it a bunch on the pod before, but it's like, I think in general high school yes. and, and that like part of your adolescence is the most cruel, challenging, and frustrating times of any person's life. Right, right. Yeah, Be- absolutely. Because uh, now, you know, I mean, in contrast, and, and I'll say this because I've, through my interactions with you over time, and also the lore of Waco, is you are the life of the party. You are, from uh, what I've heard from other people and myself, one of the most generous, generous caring, and compassionate individuals in the industry, which well, is a complete... very kind of you. I'm serious, which yeah. is a complete like slap in the face to how messed up this industry is. And it is a breath of fresh air that you are a person who you are warmly greeting people. I was at the Ralph Warren rake party, which was amazing the other day. And I walked in and I was with Chris Wallace from Mr. Porter. And we were both like, we looked around and I was like, Hey, do you, who do you know here? And I was like, Oh, I was like, let me see. I was like, I think there's way. And boom, you pop up incredibly warm. Greet me. I mean, it's so 
you turned out okay. I'll oh, put it out you. there. That's very kind of you to say. Well, yeah, it, was, it was touch and go there for a while. But no, you know, regard, regarding what you're, you're saying, and that's very, very kind of you to say. Um, but, it, it, you know, again, through my various interviews with Ralph Lauren, um, he once said something to me that, that really stuck with me. And he, and he said, when people are not happy, it's because they spend most of their time thinking about themselves rather than other people. You know, and, oh. and a lot of times, if you know, rather than hooking yourself up, you know, right. a great meal or whatever, if you, you know, are, are generous to other people, it just makes them happy and they'll kind of bestow that upon other people. You know, it's, it's, it's just a, a good feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I would think, of, yeah. And also like a positive reputation that, that travels very far. Yes. And I, you know, I agree with you also. There's so much, um, there, there's so much baggage that goes along with the, you know, quote unquote luxury and fashion industry. There, yeah. I remember the first time I ever went to a fashion show and I sat down. Um, and, and, uh, and the show was about to start and, you know, being a polite guy, I guess I just said hello to people on the right and left of me. Sure. And, and apparently that's like super uncool in the fashion world. <laughs> you know, you just have to sit there and pretend the other people don't exist. Right. Right. And the guy next to me was so shocked that he actually, he dropped his Swarovski crystal covered iPhone. You know? <laughs> so so, so I, was, I was like, okay, fine. I'll just, oh, you know, but so I, I kind of like, I, I always wanted the magazine. And the culture that we created to sort of militate against that. I right. want us to be guys that love everyone, that are inclusive, that love community, um, that don't look at competition in a traditional sense, um, but warmly invite people who would be perceived to be our competitors to be a part of our community, you know? And I think that's, that's the future. It is. And it's, I think you, you guys are at the cusp of it. It's, it's amazing. Thank you. Um, so you go from you know, high school, college, you, you went to Vassar, yes. and then you kind of have this. You, you know, I mean, you had mentioned that you had to go and you had to serve in the military for yes. a couple of years. Yes. But the thing that I, you did, which is still amazing to me, is um, you went to film school. I did. I did. So I Was uh, film your first passion before it closed? Absolutely. So the thing is, you know, again, it, well, they go, kind of go hand in hand. Like, like it's true. As a lonely guy, you know, what you do is you get really into clothes and you create these narratives and you get really into cinema and you get really into the relationship between cinema and clothes as well, right? Yeah. And if you look at all those guys that, that we revere today, you know, and, and uh, such as, you know, Cary Grant or Bogart mm-hmm. or Fred Astaire, you know, everyone always talks about Fred Astaire and his Anderson Shepard suits. But what was amazing about that is to a large extent, they were their own costume designers, right? Yeah. They were selecting what they're making and then selecting the clothes specific to the, the scenes and the roles in their films. And the extraordinary ability to sort of define character through clothing it was not lost on me. It was really cool. You know, like if you look at Casablanca, like, like there was no way that Rick could be Rick without that double breasted, you know, ivory dinner jacket. Yeah. You know? So, so yeah, it was, it's, and I, and I actually really kind of loved older movies as well. Uh, And then I kind of got into the, swept up into the whole sixties and seventies social realist movement, you know, which was great as well. Um, and then, uh, yeah, you know, then I, you know, sort of went full steam into, into the 80s as well. It's funny because I was having the con- this conversation with Alan Flusser, and he designed the clothes for Gordon Gecko. Right? Yeah, for Wall Street. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, I mean, those clothes, if he didn't have those clothes, he wouldn't have been that character, right? Like those clothes were so true. saliently connected to this the identity. The eaten braces. Exactly. And, yeah. Exactly. So, so anyway, uh, yes, yeah, so I went to film school. I went to... Uh, a quite a quite a mediocre film school actually um, in San Diego, um, San Diego State University. Okay, 
at the t- I had applied um, when I was working in a, on a cattle ranch in Montana. Uh, went to San Diego, realized everyone there was, I think, pretty much high the entire time. Okay. Uh, except for me. You know? <laughs> not, not that I have any you know, issue with sure. being really high. It's just, it just doesn't work well with me. And also, apparently, it's not legal in Singapore. So I'm okay. being law-abiding. You know? <laughs> uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, but it, was, it was a fun experience. And it was actually a really interesting experience because it was a, the last moment in film school where you, everything wasn't digitized, right? Right. So you were actually cutting actual physical film, right? Yeah. And that was really interesting. Like if you want, you know, slow motion, uh, for example, because you've got so many more frames per second, you actually had to adjust the light. You had to put that much more light in the scene. And that was all done in camera, essentially, or on the, on the set itself. I think today, basically, you can digitize anything. You can change the speed, you know, mm-hmm. the film rate. And it was, uh, it was a very interesting craft-oriented role back in, the, in those days, you know? Um, but yeah, so I went to film school, and then I, I actually worked in Los Angeles for five years. Under Catherine Bigelow, right? I did, I did. Uh, so I, well, I was very fortunate. My buddy um, had set me up with an internship with this gentleman named Alex Kitman Ho. And Alex Kitman Ho had produced all of Oliver Stone's movies, um, mm-hmm. I, I think, up until Heaven and Earth. And uh, he was, you know, extraordinary sort of uh, film producer, uh, like really just a great guy. And he was working on this film. Uh, setting up this film with Catherine Bigelow, written by Jay Cox, who'd written the script for The Age of Innocence for Scorsese. Uh, and it was her dream project at the time of uh, Joan of Arc. Mm. Um, so at the time, and I hope you know, she, if she ever listens to this, she doesn't mind me saying, she, she was very well known for just firing her assistants. Oh, know? okay. <laughs> so, so people would go and work for her, and then like two days later, she'd, they'd be fired, you know? Um, and so at, at some point, they ran out of people to send up there, and they're like, hey, you intern guy, you know? Um, and, and for all you millennials out there, when I, when I was an intern, I would run to the toilet and then I would run back so I wouldn't waste anybody's time, dude. Oh, my Lord. Right? Like, that's, that's the kind of work ethic we had back in the day. It's right? true. You know? So anyway, so, so they, um, one day they were like, okay, way go up to Catherine's house. And, and so I walked up there and I think she said something like, the first thing she said to me, she's a very nice person and she's, you know, very, very intelligent and very beautiful person as well. Um, but I think immediately she was trying to define um, what, the, what kind of movies I liked, right? Oh, so, okay. So to see if we, yes, exactly. To see if we could get along. Uh, and, and I think one of the first films that I, I said that I loved was um, Akira Kurosawa's High and Low, right? Right. Which is where, you know, that's the film where there, there's, um, you know, in uh, Schindler's List, there's only one element that's in color in the entire film, right? It's the girl in the red dress. And, in, and he um, attributes the inspiration for that for, from High and Low, where there is uh, uh, like a dye packet inside of the, this ransom money. And over the landscape of industrial Tokyo, you see it, uh, it being burnt, you know, and you see red smoke in the air. So it's really cool. Um, so it's an amazing movie. And uh, so that seemed to, to satisfy her. She was like, okay. She's uh, like, this guy's into Kurosawa. Okay. All right. All right. So then she, <laughs> then she uh, said, uh, okay, your first job is to go um, pick up my dog from the vet, right? She, okay. and she had these big German shepherds. Um, so I went and picked up her dog. And I like dogs. So then it was, I think he'd like injured his paw or something. Oh, jeez. And I was, there was a lot of flights up uh, her, to her house. And I'm like, this dog is never going to make it up there. So I just picked him up and carried him. And then I, she saw me doing that. She's like, okay, you can have the job. So, so it goes from there to uh, like a couple of weeks later, she's like, they're all leaving to go to Paris to start pre-production of this film, right? Mm-hmm. And she's like, where are, you, or where are you living? And I was living on the couch of my, my, my buddy, my, brother, uh, my godbrother. And she said, okay, well, you can stay in my guest house here. And she had this, like, incredible house in Coldwater Canyon. I mean, it's just, you know, 
baller ass Hollywood house. Right. right. Um, and so within the first two weeks of moving to Los Angeles, I'd become Catherine Bigelow's assistant and I'd had, I was living this, this like this kind of dream, you know, life. Wow. But the only thing was it was super boring, right? Because, uh, she, everyone was in France working on pre-production and I was sitting in Los Angeles just doing nothing basically. So every day I'd write her a fax. So this is back in the day of fax, sure. know, updating her on the status of her house, what was going on, so on and so forth. Uh, if there were any new projects that her age, agent was trying to line up for her and so on. Uh, and then, um, at the end I would write, incidentally, I speak French fluently, which is <laughs> not this. I speak okay French, but not amazing French. Okay. And, and then I, I know Paris. I know the streets of Paris like the back of my hand, which is, was a complete and outlier lie. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so sure enough, like after two weeks, she call, she's fired everyone in Paris. Oh. And she's like, and they're like, okay, get your ass on a plane. You're coming to Paris to be her assistant, right? So, and that, that was just one of the most amazing moments in my life. You know, it was um, that three, three or four month period when in Paris, we're gearing up for this film. Um, it's with the whole French crew, so I'm speaking French the entire time and, and living in Paris uh, when it's your first sort of job and it's such a dynamic and glamorous world. You know, I remember my first role was to take a video camera and shoot the actresses that were auditioning for the role. And mm -hmm. one of the people that came in was Claire Danes, right? And she gave such a stunning performance um, that, I mean, it was just like, you know, I was crying, you know, like at, at the end, end of the take. So, so anyway... Um, unfortunately, uh, Catherine and the producer at the time, I, I'm hoping not divulging anything that will get me into legal trouble, but who was Luc Besson, okay. um, they had a falling out over who should play Joan of Arc, right? Right. So Catherine really liked this at that time, unknown Australian actress named Kate Blanchett. Right? <laughs> okay. Right? I mean, I'd imagine how amazing she would have been, right? Right. And Luc Besson really liked this woman that was his wife. Well, it was Mila Jovovich, who is sure. saying nothing um, against her. She's had an amazing career as well. And from what I understand, a really, she's a really cool person. Yeah. But, but uh, so they, they just couldn't agree. And finally, Catherine decided to leave uh, the project. And he continued that project with, with Mila Jovovich and then and made, and made that film. Yeah. So then we moved back to Los Angeles. And she, you know, she said, what are you doing now? And I said, uh, yeah, nothing. And she said, well, okay, let's, let's, why don't you, Go back to being my assistant, and you can start doing a bit of development for me as well, which is you look for projects, you read scripts that come in, and, and so on. So I did that for uh, five years or so. And then, uh, and then you know, the, the, the funny thing is, and, and again, I have nothing but the greatest respect for Catherine and the greatest affection for her was, well, she's amazing. But it dawned on me after five years that I, I fucking hate Los Angeles. <laughs> do, you like, do you like Los Angeles? Um, I'll be very honest with you. No, I no, don't. I detest Los Angeles. Um, I love uh, to visit. Yes. But um, I, I, in a previous career, I used to have to go there a lot. Yes, and, um, yes. It was great to go yes. and hang out. Yes. But I think my lifestyle choices, uh, to be like careful with my words here, like it, I, just didn't, I just didn't fit. I right. didn't fit. It, that, that culture... I think is great for the people who want to live there and the people that live there and that's perfect and they can live there and I'll live here. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it's, it's a um, mono industry town, right? And it's only yes. about, it's only about show business, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's only about the film industry and everyone is, it's, I've never, I've never been to a place where everyone was just so blatantly mercenary, right? Oh. Or like, where it was just like, okay, um, what do you do? Um, okay, you can't help me. Um, please fuck off. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it was just like that. And, and it was, uh, 
And then that culture, you know, and you see now what's happened with, you know, the indictment of a lot of people who were involved in very high, high ranking in that culture. Yeah. That was pervasive, just the way people talked, you know. Like I remember, you know, this one guy, and, and this wasn't even like a sexist thing that he said, but one, like this big famous agent guy walks into a room mm-hmm. and he, there's like, you know, a bunch of us around the table and, and Catherine, right? And he's like, I don't give a shit what you think. I don't give a shit what you think. I don't give a shit what you think. I just care what you think and pointed to her, which I get that he was trying to say something that, you know, like that expressed that he really cared about her opinion. Right. But I was raised in an environment where you don't talk to other human beings that way. No, no, no you shouldn't. Period. Exactly. So yeah, I was, I was, I was getting increasingly depressed because to me, it was almost as if the, the city of Los Angeles was built over, built over the gaping jaws of hell. Right. And I had to exist in this sort of hell-like existence. Um, and I was just like, I got to leave, you know. So, so um, Catherine and I had at some point um, written a script together. It had been optioned by Alex, who was the, uh, um, the producer mm-hmm. that I had initially interned for. And I thought that was a pretty decent accomplishment. Um, yeah, that's a big, I mean, just to put sidebar here, you are the assistant to Catherine Bigelow and eventually you write a script. So the assistant becomes a peer per se. That's, that's <laughs> pretty so. cool. I guess so. Yeah. yeah you know, I'm just I, saying. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't ever, I wouldn't consider us peers, but well, I, you know, I still kind of hero worship her. But, but yeah. anyway, yes, uh, it was, it was a cool moment. Um, and then I decided I'd, I'd go and visit Singapore because, um, you know, Singapore is really interesting that around that time, which was at the beginning of the millennium, mm-hmm. there was so much energy in terms of people wanting to set up new businesses. There was this prevailing sense of optimism and, and, and drive. And, mm-hmm. and it would, there was an ease of, of getting things done, which was, I'm not necessarily sure if I would say the same thing today, but it was, it was a very exciting time, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went there and, you know, the irony was, was uh, being Asian. I'd never really lived in Asia with the exception of the two and a half years I spent in the military. Oh. During which time, you know, it was quite distracted because I was in the military, you know? Yeah. Um, and it, like, I had this like moment where I was like, hey, I'm like part of the majority here. <laughs> right? Because I'd always, and it never That's, dawned on me that I always felt like I'm a part of the mi- minority to some degree or another, you know? Right. Yeah. You know? I mean, I could, I could be like the whitest Asian dude in the world, but I'd still, I'm still an Asian guy, right? Yeah. And, and it's funny, like I remember, uh, and there's, you know, like subtle cultural differences as well. I had an amazing girlfriend, but she was from Vermont. So for breakfast, she wanted, you know, pancakes Waffles and stuff, yeah, yeah. And maple syrup and, you know, and I wanted, you know, Vietnamese pho or dim sum, you know? So, right. but anyway, so uh, I was like, yeah, I had this sort of like mind blowing epiphany where I was like, hey, yeah, I'm really a part of the majority here. And then I was like, you know what? Being part of the majority rocks. Yeah, right? you know? sure. So um, it's just so easy. People are just like nice for you to you for no reason. You know, <laughs> you're like, oh, we all are kind of in a tribe over here, right? Sure, right, right. So I, you know, I was like, okay, let me let me just hang out here for a couple of years and and see what's up and see if I can uh, see if I can experience this because I, I want to see how this is going. The other thing too was uh, I hadn't really spent time with my family throughout mm. this entire period that I'd been away, and I, you know, I we it was at this point that my parents. And I really started to enjoy each other's company because we stopped trying to imagine that we could be different people than we are, if, if that makes sense, you know? Wow. Yeah. And I went on some great vacations uh, with my dad. Um, we, we, we went uh, to um, Angkor Wat, you know, together. Yeah. We, we went to Burma or Myanmar and we went to like Pagan together. So we had these amazing experiences. I got into a little bit of trouble during uh, the trip to Cambodia because I, I, I made out with the princess of Cambodia. 
And, okay. And apparently that was not cool. Yeah. Yes. File that in for the biography. <laughs> She's a very beautiful woman. Though. She, if she ever listens to this, I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so, uh, and then, and then I was, you know, living in Singapore and, but there's, there's not much in terms of like uh, business in, in the film industry, you know? I, yeah. I worked on a, a film together with a friend of mine, Eric Koo, but there was no steady work. And, and I was desperate to start earning some money, right? And so I called up my buddy, who was the editor-in-chief of the uh, Sunday newspaper, the Sunday Times. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, his, you know, can, you, can you please hire me as a writer? And he said, listen, it's fortuitous that you've called, because I actually need writers in one of three subject matters. And, and whatever the subject matters were, I was just going to profess that I was really, really good at those subject matters, that I had sort of a, a masterful knowledge of those subject matters. Okay. So the first subject matter was sports. And I was like, dude, I just love sports. Like, <laughs> like that's all I do all day long is it's play great. sports. In fact, just after I get off the phone with you, I'm going to do some sports. Yeah, right? I'm going to do some sports. <laughs> right? and, then, and then I was like, so what's the second subject matter? And he was like, yeah, so Singapore, um, we now have to acknowledge that we made a massive tactical, uh, tactical error in, in instituting a two-child policy when we gained independence. So mm-hmm. now we have a diminishing population, so we need stories about sex. So people will have sex and repopulate Singapore and I'm like dude I'm an expert uh, that's like my favorite <laughs> subject matter all I do is think about sex and actually after I hang off the phone with you I'm gonna have sex with myself right? yeah right and then uh and, and then and he was like right okay and then he, then he was like um and I was like out of curiosity what's the third subject matter and he said the third subject matter is watches Okay. And I said, hey, I actually really like watches. He's like, dude, stop. So he, he was But that you were an expert. Uh, my family's always liked watches, you know, and, I, and I, I, yeah, I've always kind of dug watches. Um, so, he, so being the smart guy that he is, he, he gave me a test examination, right? So I had to write oh. a story on each. So he calls me up and he's like, okay, so, so your story on sports, you are probably the most unathletic man on the planet. <laughs> you know nothing about sports. You're like, uh, I scored a touchdown, got a hole in one, and slammed the dunk. Yes. yes I slammed. <laughs> the, uh, sadly, the dunk was not slammed in this particular instance for okay. me. I, I failed quite miserably at this. Um, and, and, so, and it's true. I'm actually terrible at all sports. Right, uh, me too. Yeah, that's okay. I've got, I, you know, I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah, you're, you're all right. You're doing my, okay. My, actually, my, my biggest fear is not so much about my own athletic performance, but like I want to raise my children in the future. I don't have any yet, but I'd like to as decent athletes. And so now I'm like, I have to get a tutor to teach me these sports so I can then teach them, right? Oh, right. okay. You know? Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, then the second story was on sex and then he, and I said, so how was my story on sex? You know, with all this sort of hopefulness in my eyes. And he was like, yeah, it's so sad that you're the age that you are. And I think you may not have actually ever had sex. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> it's certainly not in the right way. And, oh, <laughs> and, no. I, and I was like, Ooh, this is this. And then I was like, let's listen, dude, you know, like, but hang on, you know, you're gay. I'm not gay. So maybe it was a good difference in perspective. And he's like, no, I showed your story to all the women in the office and they think you're such an idiot. Oh, and gosh. I'm like, oh, okay, this is not going well. So, you know, I'm now thinking about, you know, going back to the bathtub and opening a vein. And then he's like, oh, but wait, there's a silver lining. And I'm like, what's that? And he's, and he's like, uh, everyone liked your watch story, right? And, and I had written a story about Panerai because Panerai, um, I love the mythology of Panerai, that it was a tool used by the Italian naval commandos mm-hmm. um, 
and uh, and then it had been transformed into a luxury brand and then afterwards into a manufacturer but i just love that and it was at the time when it was still quite an obscure brand mm-hmm. um uh, priest alone priest yeah, yeah. <laughs> no to be fair I, a little bit pet post alone but okay. still you know still not in the public's consciousness not in the way that it eventually became gotcha and and he and so he uh he said i'm gonna hire you to be the watch writer for for the boom yeah. boom so uh that, that but then i had a i became the guy that basically created the watch supplement for any magazine that would have me right right so they like if you're a publishing company and you want to have a watch magazine and basically the way it works is that you just want to accrue all this revenue from watch advertisers so what you do is you, you create a separate watch book called your watch supplement and then you get a guy like me to write the entire thing but they were always working um in a way that they were trying to spend as little money as possible on the editorial value of that project while mm. accruing the greatest amount of revenue. And it became a little bit frustrating because I wanted to shoot our own images. I wanted to, you know, do like shoots with models and something like that wearing watches. I wanted to hire kind of cool writers, um, but, but no one wanted to do that. And I remember, uh, you know, I was having a conversation with my dad um, and, and he was like, you know, how are you feeling about your watch writing career? And I said, it's a little depressing. Um, <laughs> first of all, no one wants to do what I want to do. And second of all, you know, I write about all these watches, but I can't afford any of these watches, right? Like mm. not on a freelance writer's salary. Yeah, yeah. And then he said, well, listen, you know, INSEAD has just opened up a, um, so, you know, the French business school, yeah. has opened up a campus in Singapore. Why don't you consider putting aside your artistic ambitions and going to INSEAD um, and after that, if you graduate with an MBA from there, I'm pretty sure you could buy whatever watch you want. And I was like, okay, this sounds cool. Right. I, I later would realize that I would never be able to pass the entrance exam to any business school in the world anyway. <laughs> right? But, but in any event, I was having a conversation with my brother and he said, oh, you know what? I hear that, um, when you're applying for INSEAD, um, during the oral examination, they'll ask you a question. And the question is, what is a business that doesn't exist yet, but should exist? And I was like, shit, I know. And he said, what is it? And I said, well, let, let me put it this in the context of an American high school movie, right? So uh, <laughs> if, and when the new kid goes to the cafeteria for the first day, the first table he sees are the table of all the popular kids, right? Yep. Um, and that was what would happen back in the day in the bookshop or the newsstand. The first shelf that you would see front and center would be all the fun, glossy lifestyle magazines. You know, your GQs, your details, which sadly doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, all these kind of cool, fun magazines. Mm-hmm. And then, so what's the next table that you see? Um, in the cafeteria, Jeremy, who would you imagine that that would be? Uh, I mean, I would say like the cheerleaders, I guess, or the nerds. No, okay. So I would say uh, kind of, yes. So okay. I would say it would be the intellectual, but still socially uh-huh. viable, you know, like the good students. You know? Okay. So that's, in, like, that's the next shelf that you would see. If you go one shelf over, then you would see your Newsweek and your Time, your International Herald Tribune, you know, like, like, but still, I mean, like cool magazines, but, but you know, intelligent. Right? Okay. And then, like, in the cafeteria scenario, all the way in the back of the cafeteria, and I know because this was my table, yeah, right, same was, here. was the social outcast table. You know, the yeah, guys... Yeah, we were on the third floor. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, so uh, and in the social... Out, the equivalent to the social outcast table was what they call in uh, the hobby section in the bookshop. And oh. that's, like, the shelf all the way in the very model back. Model trains. Yes. <laughs> all the way in the back on the bottom so that you've got cat fancy, you got model trains, you got postage stamp collecting. Cat fancy. <laughs> There's actually a, a, a magazine on knitting called Beads and Buttons. And oh. I kid you not, there's a different macrame teddy bear on the cover of that magazine every issue. Oh, okay. And there, sir, <laughs> there you would find the watch magazines, right? Oh. So I was like, this is ridiculous. You got to, because these things are expensive, right? Yeah. And guys like watches. So you got to take the watches off of the loser table 
and put that onto the cool kids table. And the way that you do that is without losing the technical credibility, because you still need to have those articles, but you got to mix it with like lifestyle. You got to have, um, you know, it should be the intersection of everything related to, to cool contemporary culture, whether it be auto sports, whether it be fashion, whether it be literature, whether it be cinema. And I think that brands have all kind of moved towards that now, but at the right. time it was, it was a pretty novel idea. And so my brother looks at me and goes, that's a cool idea. You should call your magazine Revolution, you know, and both for, you know, the, the hands that tell time and, yeah. and also because of the, the positioning of the magazine. So he, he introduced me uh, to my business partner, Bruce, uh, who was interested to, to start a publishing company. Um, and so we had a 45 minute conversation in, in the four seasons of Singapore. And, uh, and then we started the magazine. We started it in uh, 2005. And actually, that that was uh, we were profitable by the first issue, which at the time uh, I didn't realize is extremely rare. And yeah. I would come to realize it later. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, that that uh, so that's how Revolution started, and then Revolution we we went, we launched because we knew nothing about publishing. We didn't we weren't daunted by the realities of it, right? Um, and so we launched in uh, in America the next year. We launched in Russia and Italy as well. So. Yeah, and I think we're now we're in thirteen editions around the world. Um, so there you go. That's insane. Yeah, it was, it's, it was kind of cool. I mean, it just happened very naturally. You know, I, I have to preface this by saying, like, I'm not a particularly smart dude, but I'm a bit of a lucky idiot, right? Nah, <laughs> I would, that's, that's, you're very uh, humble, but I, I, I think the thing that you're glossing over is also, there's a lot of work that goes into all of this stuff. And sure. even, even then, when an opportunity knocks on your door, you still have to do the work. You sure. know, when someone says, okay, uh, I, I'm, I'm interested in hiring you, why don't you do these three things? The, you know, I, I, I know that other people may say, okay, uh, well, wait, you want me to do those for free? No way, man, F you. Like, right. you, you're just going to take that and you're going to try to, no, like, I just want to see if you know your stuff. And you didn't do that. You're like, okay, I'm going to do it. Yes. And so, I mean, if you want to say you're a lucky idiot, that's fine, but you also just sound like someone who refused to give up and kept working. I, you know, I think persistence is super important. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, and I, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was trying at times because I had to write the entire 300 pages of the magazine myself. Oh my and god! So I would, I would come up with different pseudonyms, you know, and then I'd be like, <laughs> I quite like writing from a female perspective. Actually, this is. You know. Oh my gosh, that's crazy! And so the rake comes shortly after, right? The, so we we launched the rake uh, in 2008 during the you know financial Great crisis. Great time, to, exactly, exactly. Because you're at your 10th year. Yes. As of, you know, now. So probably the most unwise time to launch anything new. But, you know, it, it was weighing on my mind for some time that um, if you looked at how men were being spoken to, mm-hmm. it was very, very strange. It was as, as if men were being told recurringly um, that if they didn't try to look as young as possible, this is in the context of like the mid 2000s, right? That they weren't socially relevant anymore. So men were being encouraged to have plastic surgery to right. be uh, metrosexual, to be, uh, you know, um, to dress in, in sort of rather bizarre ways. I mean, I think everyone wanted to be really, really thin as well. And, you know, Eddie Slimane had just come out with Dior Homme uh, like four years, a couple of years earlier. Mm-hmm. And I think famously Karl Lagerfeld lost like a third of his body weight just to wear the suits. Yeah, he was um, a chunky and now he's a yeah. slim gym. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Well, you know, kudos to him. He's managed to keep it off. Yeah. But it was just a very confusing time. But in particular, it bothered me because in every generation previous to ours, there was a belief that a man got better as he got older, right? Like when you think of Cary Grant, you don't think of a 20-year-old Cary Grant, you know? You think of him in his 50s or 60s with silver hair. Yeah, North by Northwest. Exactly. Walk, don't run. Exactly. 
uh, looking immaculate. Um, yeah. And 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 I you know and when that, the same thing for Agnelli, the same thing for Fred Astaire, the same thing for Sinatra. They all became cooler as I got older, right? And I kind of just really want to to create a magazine that brought that ethos back to to, to tell people to embrace the idea of aging. I mean, of course, there was a selfish reason that the fact that I was getting old, of course, but I want to feel that I was going to be more relevant in my 40s than I was in my 30s and more relevant in my 50s than I was in my 40s, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I wanted to promote this concept that man, men became their more pure and more essential selves as they got older, right. Right? which I think is true, incidentally. I think you start to like yourself more and you start to be comfortable in your own skin, and that's probably the greatest thing that any man can do. Right? I wholeheartedly agree. All right, so, you know, we were like joking about the f- fact that we suck at sports, but it took me a long time to get over the fact that I suck at sports. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's true. Yeah, I haven't let that get the best of me anymore. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, I'm proud of it. <laughs> so, so, so uh, um, and then the other thing that really bothered me was from a um, style perspective, uh, and this kind of linked back maybe a little bit with my early passion for clothing, um, men had become extremely confused in terms of how to dress. Like you had... Um, celebrities showing up at red carpet events with their tuxedos with their shirts untucked. You remember this entire phase where men would wear suits with their shirts untucked. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, again, or they, they'd be sort of like hijacked by the caprices and you know, ephemera of fashion. So men would you know, be wearing patent leather combat boots with like you know, um, sequin you know, headbands or whatever. And, and it was just really confusing, right? And I said, okay, amid all this sort of miasmic haze, I think what we need is kind of something clarifying. And I think we need to go back to classic style, right? Classic elegance. And, and you know, like Alan Flusser's book, Dressing the Man, was, was, was so important to me because it imprinted upon my mind that there is a, a definition for classic codes, right? Mm. And, and I wanted, you know, to give this to guys um, through, my, through the rake so that they could then be encouraged to experiment, right? But I want them to have that basic understanding of fit and proportion. I want them to understand that, for example, a single-breasted tuxedo that's one with a gilet is actually more formal than a double-breasted jacket, which was popularized by the Duke of Windsor, which is why you wear a wingtip collar, you know, strictly speaking, with a single-breasted uh, tuxedo with a gilet, and you wear a soft, turned-down you know, collar with a double-breasted jacket. Then once you understand all these rules, once you understand all these codes, and once you've mastered them, hopefully, then you can do whatever you want. You know, I mean, Agnelli was great because he was extremely irreverent. He would wear whatever he felt like. Yeah. But he was doing it from a perspective of education. It's like Picasso. It's like he passed through mastering classic painting first before he went into Impressionism, you know. And I'm not necessarily, I'm sorry, not into, into Cubism so, or abstraction. So I'm not necessarily sure that, you know, the best thing to do is try, try being an, an abstract painter immediately. You know, it, it's, That's fair, yeah. Right? It's good to have some knowledge, right? So, and then the last thing I wanted to do was, was essentially the world had been sort of hijacked by WhatsApp. All right. So everything was an acronym. Everything was an emoji, right? Like uh, right. everyone, or text messaging, like everyone oh, yeah, was, right. was communicating to each other in like, you know, in shorthand. Mm-hmm. And I want to, you know, I love the English language. I mean, I'm not great at it, but, but there are some people out there who are extraordinary gifted writers and, and edifying sort of champions of the English language. Foremost amongst them, I would, I would, I would, I would mentioned would be Nick Falks, you know, Mm -hmm. and I wanted to read writing that just was so uplifting in its mastery of the English language. And so we put these three things together. I wanted to bring back long format journalism, essentially during a period where everyone thought it was going, you know, it's over. Yeah. Um, And then I wanted to create a a magazine that sort of went against everything that the internet was. So I wanted to create a magazine that felt like a a hard, you know, like a coffee table book that had a a cover that felt like a canvas from a painting that aged well, that people would keep rather than throw away. Because I thought it was really shameful that a lot of people consume magazines by flipping through them and throwing them away. Yeah. So that was the rake. 
right? Uh, and uh, and that was launched in 2008. And it was, um, and I remember going to Savile Row for the first time and speaking to Andrew Roland and Anderson and Shepard and the guys there were like, really, I mean, they were, they were, they were, they were just confused that anyone would want to interview them, you know, that they would, we would want to write a story about them. And I was like very excited by this because these are, you know, the, the, one of the most sort of definitive voices in men's classic style, you know? Um, and it was a big honor to meet all the tailors in Savile Row. And I have to say, we were very, very warmly embraced by all those guys. So I put together this magazine, put out the first issue, and it is a total flop, right? Oh, jeez. Well, the reason why it was a total flop was, at the time, it, it, was, it was based in Singapore. And so I would have these meetings with these 27-year-old or 25-year-old, um, you know, communications ladies. Mm-hmm. And the recurring thing that it would say to me is, why did you create a magazine about old or dead people wearing suits? You know? And I was like, oh, okay, this is not good. Oh. Right? Then, then, but where I, I didn't realize that, that it had started to develop a bit of a cult following because it was also very expensive to get it overseas. Yeah, I think I paid like $50 for I'm so one. sorry. No, no, it's fine. Yeah. I mean, it was yeah. worth it to me, but. But then, uh, yeah, it sort of started to develop a, a bit of a cult following and I didn't realize it at the time that in particular, it developed the following in England, right? Which is, again, England or London is, is where men's style was born. Yeah. And, and there, it's so deeply rooted there that there's still so much love for it. And it was at a time where it was flourishing. Again, it was this renaissance for tailoring, this renaissance for classic style. Um, and somehow our magazine became kind of the voice of that. You know? so, so I remember getting this phone call from this incredible guy named Jason Broderick, who was at the time the head of menswear um, and watches at Harrods. And he said, listen, I, I'm, I found your magazine and I want to give it to all of our private shopping clients. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. And yeah. then, and then uh, um, the, gen- the general managers of Claridge's, the Connaught, the Barclay, um, had somehow found the magazine as well. And they wanted to put the magazine in the rooms of, of their hotels, right? Which was amazing to me because, and, and it was incredible because Diego Della Valle discovered the magazine in Claridge's. Um, wow. Mr. Lauren discovered it at the Connaught, you know? Um, Ralph Lauren. Yes, yeah. exactly. exactly. <laughs> and, and, um, and so we started develop, de- developing this following everywhere except for Singapore, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and at some point, um, Bruce, my business partner, was like, let's just make this one global edition and let's just move to England. You know? yeah. So that's why we set up the office over uh, for the rake over in London. And I think, you know, one of the last things I want to talk about is like, you guys have really, at least for me, I think you were really ahead of your time. And the fact that, you know, so I grew up, I had magazines, but I would say I, I tried to hone my knowledge more on the internet. Sure. It was great because, you know, I was in the Midwest and I was trying to figure out, you know, I wanted to find my little niche of like, oh, these people are into clothes or these people are into anime and all this stuff. And so I could find that on the internet. Sure. But eventually you get so overwhelmed the quality of the internet, there's no control. Right. And so when I discovered the rake, it was perfect because oh, cool. I could see all these images that were a lot of them I'd never seen before. Or if I had seen it, it was extremely low res from someone right. on the internet. Sure. And then, you know, one of the things that you guys have started to do now is also you've turned, you know, your your publishing arm into a bit of a commerce arm as well. Absolutely. And we talked about this when you uh, when you and I were on the panel with uh, Simon Crompton at, at PT Womo, and you guys have really managed to, you know, because the stuff that you write about, because it's an international magazine, it's great, but it's, I can't really just Google it and find it on Amazon. Yes, or, yes. And now, I, what's great, and I really mean this, is like you are selling this stuff. 
So I can say, oh, that great, weird one-piece collar shirt. Sure, yes. I can go get. Uh, absolutely. Or you can get gloves um, made by an artisan in Naples that was making them for the, the Bourbon Kings. You know, yeah. And it's still making them. Um, no, I mean, that was the whole idea. We would have people tell us all the time, listen, I love the magazine and it's great to read about, you know, this umbrella maker in, in Naples, but I'd, I'm, I'm never going to have time to go there and get a, a, an umbrella made. Right. You guys should offer these things through, through your magazine in some way. And, and for some time, I'd, I'd become very interested in e-commerce. You know? um, I, I had become kind of a convert to e-commerce as well, because, and, and this is with no disrespect to the traditional sort of retail thing. You know, so often you have this experience where you have to you know, jump in a cab or an Uber or drive to a big department store, mm-hmm. and then you get there. You've got to find parking, and you go in, and then you, you know, it's so confusing. It's like this maze. You finally get there. Then oftentimes you're talking to someone that has less product, product knowledge than you, and yeah. when you finally find the, he finds the thing that you're looking for, he either doesn't have your size or doesn't know, you know whatever, doesn't have the reference that you're looking for or whatever. Yeah. And I like the idea, and, but you know, e-commerce has to come with great editorial and great, you know, intellectual tools as well. Sure. Um, you have to do all the research for that customer and give it to them in a way that is engaging and honest, right? Um, and that was actually the, the, the first question that everyone had related to e-commerce was a lot of the young, all, all the older journalists got this immediately. But some of the young journalists were like, well, what about my editorial integrity, dude? And I'll say, your editorial integrity. You are a luxury journalist. You did not choose to go work at CNN and be embedded with the troops in Afghanistan. Yeah. You are writing about watches or, you know, tailored clothing. So let me ask you this, young journalist, what takes more editorial integrity for you to accept a trip in a part of the plane you can't normally fly in to stay in some beautiful room you can normally can't afford to drink more champagne than you could possibly drink, you know, on your own tab and then have to write about let's say a gold eagle belt buckle or some sort of horological monstrosity when you know it's not good but because you took that sort of like you know that 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 deal you now are obligated to write about it or does it say more about you if you whatever your name is right stake your rape your name and your reputation on the line and say this unstructured neapolitan jacket from this obscure maker or these beautiful sevenfold ties with made from these vintage fabric i state your name, um, I vouch with my reputation that you're going to love these uh, because I've discovered them and I love them too and I wear them and use them all the time, right? Yeah, versus I, you know, like what you're saying, like I'm being kind of... Bribed. Bri- yeah, because yes. I, yeah. I mean, what you were referring to is the the often untold lore of the yeah. the luxury press trip in yes. which a magazine yes. will, or a, a company will say, hey, come to this place, we're going to make you feel the best you've ever felt. and Absolutely. then. In return, without any sort of agreement uh, or, or formal agreement, you're going to give us some positive. The press. implications there. Yeah. Well, you know, this is the bigger issue, actually. Um, one of the reasons why print is in its most precarious time is because this extremely barbaric relationship between print advertising and coverage, mm. right, is completely anachronistic. Right. The whole in the old days, it was basically I'm going to give you all these ads. And then you will just have to write about my stuff at some point, right? And this mm-hmm. is how it works for everyone, right? I mean, people talk about church and state and how there's like, you know, <laughs> but it, it, that's, that's, that's a myth, right? Right, and right. So, um, and, and, and a pretty uh, uh, farcical myth, to be honest with you, right? Everyone, but the problem with that is that then if you spend all your time covering these brands, you never get an opportunity to assert your individual vision, right? Yeah. You know? So I would prefer to enter into an e-commerce partnership with brands that I genuinely love. And then when I write about them, 
that vision has the integrity of being something I had wanted to do all along, right? Right. And, and it was very interesting because now, because of e-commerce for the first time, I have the possibility to say no to certain advertisers. Not that I would generally ever say no to any advertiser, but if you really don't fit the vision of the magazine, you know, don't, no disrespect, but it's, it just doesn't work yeah. from the context that we've created. The other thing that was really amazing was that as a result, in our e-commerce, uh, the revenue from e-commerce by the end of this year will outstrip the, the, the revenue from traditional print. But the um, e-commerce is pulling print up. So we increased our print advertising business by 50% in the first six months of this year Good because Lord. we have e-commerce. And it, and, it, and it boils down to this. So basically, you meet a brand, and they're like, wait, hang on a second. So we're going to do an e-commerce partnership with you. And you're yes. So in their mind, they're thinking, but you want some ad for me. They're like, if you don't mind, you know. Um, and incidentally, that's not an obligation. But, but they're like, in their mind, they're thinking, these guys, it's so funny. They don't realize the fact that the money we make from e-commerce is going to cover all the costs from the ad. But the byproduct of this is they have to write about us a lot, right? Uh-oh. It's, go, it's a win for them, right? Yeah, yeah. But the thing is, I want it to be a win for them, right? Like the only way this works for the future is if everybody wins, like all the brands win, right? So now we have all these brands coming to us, creating ads specifically to be with us, but we want their product anyway because they think it's great stuff, you know? And there's so many artisans out there. I mean, you've been to Pitiomo. There's so many great brands out there that are totally unrepresented and this new paradigm shift yeah. gives them the possibility to be heard, to be seen, and to be worn by cool people around the world, you know? Yeah, that's, that's incredible. So... You're celebrating your 10th anniversary. Yes, sir. Which you're, you got parties here in, in New York, and then you're moving over to London to do this. Um, you know, this is, it, it does sound very trite and blase, but it's true. Like, so where, where do you think things are going to go next? Um, I think that there's, you mean in terms of e-commerce or? And, and, no, excuse me, in terms of the rake. Oh, I see. I uh, mean, are, is there going to be a 20-year party i hope so you know i mean I, I don't think that there's there's actually limits to what a magazine can be as long as you really safeguard the following that you've created you know i'd, I'd love for example to have a bar you know but i love our bar to be a bar where you could transact for e-commerce or like or you know tailored you know, like garments oh you know, right like a bunch of guys walk in they you know they could see watches while they're having their negronis or whatever you know right uh they could they could try on a velvet smoking jacket or they could like look at evening slippers and you know buy them for each other <laughs> um I, yeah so I, I think they're they're from a lifestyle perspective there's so many possibilities that we could do and i think honestly even the way in which you know e-commerce um is is used today there are so many more opportunities right like you know for example one of the, the, the moments in which people do the majority of their shopping is when they're on vacation right yeah. well, there's no reason why they shouldn't have already kind of got, looked through curated collections specific to where they're going what kind of style of vacation they're having and have those clothes um, curated for them along with the experiences that they want to have, the restaurant, um, the, the, where they're going to have a drink, right. uh, which beach they're going to hang out at, and to have clothing that will always make the guy who is that customer um, feel as if he's in the right place with the, the right clothing and, at, 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 you know, and hopefully with the right person. So. That's incredible. Yeah, so... Um, well, wait, we're, we're about to wrap up. Is there, is there any other stuff you want to add or mention before? Uh, no, that's it, man. You know, uh, 10 years, uh, it's been a, a great journey. Happy to have my uh, my my friend and business partner Alan Gafundi, who's sitting next to you here. Uh, he's funny. He said he's he came from uh, finance, right? And I and I <laughs> I used to we were cycling buddies, and and I used to ask him all the time, "How do you like banking?" And he goes, "I hate banking." Right? And he goes, "And let me tell you also that everyone that's in banking hates banking. Also, <laughs> they only they're only doing it because it's the 
largest amount of money you can make for the least amount of effort. <laughs> and then, uh, and, 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 uh, and I said, so he, one day I was telling him the story about what we want to do with e-commerce and he said, okay, I'm in. And that's how we, uh, and now he's no longer a banker. Oh, that's shout out. That's, that's fire. That's really cool. Congrats. Right. So that's it, brother. Dude, hey, that's thank you. Thank so you. So good. It's an honor. Yeah. Thank you so much. Way. Take care. You've been listening to Blamo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like the show, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned later this week for our live mini-sodes from PT Uomo and Florence, and follow along with us on Instagram at Blamo Podcast so you don't miss a thing. If you want to get in touch, email us at info at blamopod.com or join our Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.